Welcome to this new episode of Healthcare Unfiltered, Shadi Nabhan podcast. I am your host, Shadi Nabhan. I'm a hematologist and medical oncologist. I have interest in all aspects of healthcare delivery, treatment, leadership, mentorship, and policy. If you are a loyal listener, you know that I hosted previously the Outspoken Oncology. And in fact, my guest on today's podcast has been a guest on my previous podcast, The Outspoken Oncology, a couple of times. But I invited her to Healthcare Unfiltered to talk about direct-to-consumer advertising. It's an important topic. It's also a tricky topic. And really what got my interest in this topic is pretty much all of the bashing on social media about how manufacturers and pharmaceutical companies advertise to patients who are the consumers of their actual drugs and products, regardless of the disease that we are talking about. But what I found often missing is other healthcare entities and how they also advertise to consumers, healthcare systems, hospitals, surgical centers, there are other healthcare entities that also advertise to the consumer, which is the patient. But I don't think they get as much of a balanced critique as pharmaceutical companies or as drug manufacturers. So I really wanted to tackle the topic of direct-to-consumer advertising from all angles. Let's define the consumer. Let's define the product. Who is marketing to who? And what are the advantages and the pitfalls? Is this a good practice? Is it not? I think direct-to-consumer advertising is something that is very critical in the healthcare market to understand, to tackle, and to discuss in a transparent manner and in a manner that hopefully lead to healthy dialogue and a debate, but more importantly, at the end, to help patients. Ultimately, it's all about patients. So is there some good direct-to-consumer advertising that might help patients? Is there some bad direct-to-consumer advertising? Let's talk about that. And again, to dissect this issue, I have the pleasure of hosting Dr. Allison Bateman-House, as I said, Dr. Bateman House was my guest on the Outspoken Oncology. In fact, we talked about right to try bill. We talked about some ethical dilemmas with COVID-19, but I have her now on my new podcast, Healthcare Unfiltered, to talk about direct-to-consumer advertising. Dr. Allison Bateman House is an assistant professor in the Department of Population Health at NYU Grossman School of Medicine. She had her PhD from Columbia University and her MPH also from Columbia University. So I'm very delighted to have Allison with me on today's show. You can follow her on Twitter at A Bateman House. And before I air the episode I taped with Dr. Allison Bateman House on this podcast, I'd like to direct you to all podcast outlets that you possibly can find iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, TuneIn, Stitcher. Subscribe to the show, write a written review if you have some time. Rate the show if you feel that it deserves your rating, would like to earn your trust, would like to earn your ratings. 
And without further ado, Dr. Allison Bateman House, dissecting direct-to-consumer advertising on the Healthcare Unfiltered podcast. Allison, welcome to the show. I appreciate you taking the time of your busy schedule. For folks who may have missed your other episode when you came on and who don't know you, maybe a little bit about you and where you work and how do you spend your day, day in and day out? Okay, sure. And thanks for having me back again. It's a real pleasure. So I'm Allison Bateman House. I am a uh, ethicist, a medical ethicist. I work at NYU Grossman School of Medicine in New York City, part of NYU Langone Health. How, how do I spend my day, day in, day out? That's hard because it changes every single day. But I basically focus on access to investigational medicines. So that can be within a clinical trial, that can be outside of a clinical trial through, you know, what is colloquially called compassionate use. So I spend a lot of time talking with patient advocacy groups. I spend a lot of time talking with actual companies, sometimes speaking with clinical trialists themselves. So I spend a lot of time talking with a lot of people. How about that for a daily a daily uh, life and work? I like that. And um, it seems that you are my guest for difficult topics. I um, Last time I had you, we dissected the right to try bill. And we had a lot of feedback from folks that uh, became more informed after they listened to you. It was very helpful. So I'm not going to make it easier on you the second time around. We are going <laughs> to talk today about direct-to-consumer advertising. The things out there that really annoy me greatly. So exciting. I get to, uh, I get to let loose on this topic. So you get to vent here. But, uh, but let, let's start by level setting. I mean, when we talk about direct-to-consumer advertising, DTC, and people talk about it, what are we talking about? Well, we could talk about one of three things, so I'll let you decide which one you want to talk about. You could talk about the fact that physicians are now able, so this is a, a U.S. conversation. I can only talk about it knowledgeably from, from the U.S. perspective, but we could talk about the fact that physicians are now able to advertise themselves and their offices to patients, which was not always the case, so that's a, that's a newish I mean, not, not really new, but a, a, a paradigm shift that has happened over time. Then there's actual advertising of hospitals. Hospitals um, did not use to advertise themselves as services. They were seen more as, you know, sort of public goods as opposed to things that would advertise themselves for clients. So we could talk about that. And then I think the most common, you know, frame in which we talk about direct-to-consumer advertising, at least within medicine, is drugs. You know, obviously we have direct-to-consumer advertising for over-the-counter drugs. These are drugs that you do not need a prescription for. You can just go to any pharmacy and without any, you know, sort of special checks, you can just purchase, you know, your cold remedies, your, you know, GI symptom type remedies, whatever. But um, normally when we talk about direct-to-consumer advertising for drugs, we're talking about prescription drugs. And the, the tagline on most of these advertisements is, you know, go talk to your doctor. Because, of course, the doctor is the gatekeeper that would give you that prescription. So the, the most that the advertisement can hope to do is to incite interest and or demand on the consumer. But the consumer can't just walk to the pharmacy and, and act upon that interest or, or demand. They have to go through the doctor. 
Do you feel that the latter one, the last one that you mentioned, the drug advertising direct to consumer, do you feel the consumer in that equation is indeed the patient or you think it's also the physician uh, as a consumer here? Well, so I'll bracket for a second the fact that there's a whole conversation to be had about consumer, right? What's the role of consumerism in medicine? Um, but, but I think that uh, the intended consumer of that advertising is the patient because the idea is that, you know, the patient is being directed to go talk to the doctor. But I, I mean, I'm sure that those advertising messages are also meant to trickle into the subconscious of the you know, prescribe the physician, the prescribing physician as well, you know, to, to get those messages that are being, you know, very expensively crafted and, and promulgated and and also to, you know, just sort of lodge that particular drug at the forefront of the person's mind. So when you're trying to decide what to prescribe, it, it might come to your brain uh, earlier than, than alternatives. So, so, I mean, probably both, but I, it, it is, you know, ostensibly geared directly towards the patient. Yeah, and we're going to try, I know it may be tough to talk about all of them, but we'll try to at least, uh, you know, pick on, on each one a little bit. So I just, can I just back up for one second and say, you know, there, there's been advertising to physicians in say like the pages of medical journals for quite some time. And whereas when that started, it definitely raised eyebrows and every so often there's a new and novel innovation. Like I remember maybe in the last year or so, there was actually a front of the cover advertisement as opposed to like buried, you know, in the pages of the of the journal, and that raised some eyebrows. But that doesn't seem to invoke quite the same ire as you know these on TV or bus stop or subway ads or something, you know, directed directly at the patient. And I think that gets to the issue that I'm sure we'll talk about of you know how informed is the audience that's getting those messages. Sure, absolutely. We're going to talk about that for all of these three from an informing standpoint. But let me, I want to back up a little bit is, and I like to simplify things because I think I have a pretty simple mind. Is it fair to say that direct to consumer advertising is a form of marketing, right? I mean, we can agree on that. It's marketing. Yes. But it's and obviously marketing that they think works, or else people wouldn't, uh, you know, companies wouldn't be spending the money to do it, right? Right. But all marketing, I mean, Pepsi Cola, Coca Cola, uh, you know, diapers. You can, I mean, all of this is ads and marketing that uh, companies that manufacture or all of these products they will put ads and try to target the consumer. What is so different about here that is uh, you know, ruffling some feathers and making people uneasy than everything else. Because I can make an argument that, you know, when you have an ad ad for Pepsi Cola, Pepsi Cola could have some, you know, side effects, could cause some issues, could cause some problems. But you always have this youthful person drinking the the bottle of Pepsi Cola and doing okay. So what's about healthcare that is? You know, you keep talking about Pepsi, and I'm sitting here drinking a Coca Cola. <laughs> so. Um... So I'm having a bit of cognitive dissonance, but okay. So, so in order to answer in order to answer your question, I have to again bring in the hospitals and the doctors, and I'll yes. try to do it quickly. Sure. So there was a prohibition for quite some time in the United States on doctors advertising. 
Why was that? The idea was that allopathic medicine, you know, what we consider now sort of your everyday mainstream medicine that you go to doctors and hospitals for, was only one of multiple types of medicine out there. There was homeopathy, there was chiropractic, there were um, Thompsonian medicine, I mean, things that generally have disappeared off the radar now. And in the era before, you know, board accreditations and, you know, highly ranked medical schools and whatnot, it really was buyer beware and all sorts of different, you know, quote unquote, medical experts out there competing for the patient. And there was rampant advertising and all sorts of, you know, patient testimonials, but, you know, there was no truth in advertising law or whatever. So if you actually look back at historical medical advertisements, you know, you see these ludicrous claims of, you know, I took this, uh, you know, liver pill and, you know, lost 40 pounds and, and had all this energy. And, you know, so, so there was really this, um, you know, rampant, uncontrolled market of all different types of medical practitioners trying to get clients. And allopathy di distinctly decided in order to differentiate itself, it was going to say as an ethical and professional stance, we will not allow advertising. So for many years, your quote-unquote allopathic traditional doctors did not advertise. And the sort of ethical and, and professional claim put there is we are not just another consumer product to be purchased like Pepsi-Cola or Coca-Cola. We are a profession, and profession has norms and standards that you know, self-regulate, and that we are not just any profession, we are a fiduciary profession, which means we have an inborn, ingrained responsibility to put the good of our clients above our own personal good. So when we prescribe a patient a medicine or when we prescribe a certain course of treatment for them, you know, go to this hospital or whatever, it is because we are putting the patient's best interest above, say, our own financial interest. So there, there was, you know, this, this idea that, you know, part and parcel of being a doctor was not trying to profit off of your patients. And, you know, that was, in, in, you know, sort of behind this idea that we are not going to go out and, and advertise for patients. Now, it was the same thing with pharmaceuticals. You know, in your patent medicine era, anyone could advertise anything without really any sort of truth in advertising claims. And they did. I mean, the, the advertisements that you can find out there are just wild. And so then you had your quote unquote ethical drug companies that in order to differentiate themselves from their competitors said, we are not going to advertise our drugs. So it was the same ideology of, you know, we are science-based. We're not trying to you know, take advantage of our customers. Yes, we're selling a product, but we are, you know, really sort of a, a beneficent, you know, yes, capitalistic, but but at the same time, you know, almost a fiduciary force, um, and we're going to act that way. And so it, it has been really quite a change for both doctors and for drug companies at some point in time in U.S. history, and, and the time points vary to say, you know, well, actually, we're not doing that anymore. So to get back to your, your question, what's different between a drug and Pepsi-Cola? I mean, the drug is making claims that, A, we're here for your health, B, we're scientific, C, we're effective, tested, and proven, 
and D, we're part of this larger, you know, scientific health enterprise. And whereas we may not have, you know, 100% the same fiduciary responsibility that your doctor does, we do have a sort of moral obligation not to completely screw you over. Whereas I don't think anyone feels that Coca-Cola or Pepsi have that obligation. Very good distinction. Going back to a very nice historical perspective, thank you for that. Going back to the legality of issues, and then we'll talk about the ethics of issues. But um, when I was doing a little bit of research on the topic, the drug advertising to consumers or, or to patients is legal only in the US and New Zealand. At least that's what, what I saw. A, uh, am I correct? And B, what did the rest of the world see to make it not legal that the U.S. and New Zealand did not see? I have no idea. I have absolutely no idea. I will tell you in, in the U.S., both in the case of doctors and uh, drug companies, to my understanding, the sort of impetus to push that shift away from, you know, good doctors and good companies don't advertise to you know, well, they actually should be able to advertise was uh, a sort of a two-prong attack. One was that if you want to increase patient um, opportunities and, and sort of, you know, promote competition, which of course, you know, theoretically would have benefits for the patient in terms of pushing down price and, you know, increased options and increased education about your awareness, then you had to allow this advertising to happen because otherwise people didn't know what options were out there. So I don't know. I don't know why that was so fertile in the United States and New Zealand and not elsewhere, but it, it definitely, definitely changed the landscape in the United States dramatically. And I will say I might be um, hallucinating here, but the, the last time I heard, I think Australia might be uh, toying with the idea of allowing direct-to-consumer drug advertising, but I mean, maybe that, that came up and then was dismissed. I, I haven't heard anything about it recently. Right. Now, you know, the, the scientist in me or the, um, again, the investigator in me always thinks that in order for us to either critique or praise an intervention, we need to have data. We need to have some data to say that this is, was bad or good. And we have to take our emotions, I guess, out of it and our personal bias out of it. So is there any data at least on a patient level, and I know you're a big patient advocate and patients are at the center of everything that you do, but are there any data out there to say that direct-to-consumer advertising either hurt patients, helped patients, did anything on a patient level? Do we have anybody that looked at, into that? I am sure there is data out there. And in fact, I know the FDA has actually commissioned studies in the past looking specifically at the impact of direct-to-consumer advertising. But uh, I would be giving you false numbers if I tried to cite anything off the top of my head. I just don't know. What's I mean, I, I will tell you anecdotally and, yeah. and from, um, you know, my experience, I do hear quite frequently that, you know, patients come in actually saying a, a name brand drug. You know, I saw this on TV. I'm interested in this. What do you think about it? You know, I mean, you're the practicing physician. I'm not, but I would imagine that most physicians have had the experience of having to explain to a patient why that drug that they came in talking about is not actually indicated or is not the, the preferred choice in that situation. And I would be very curious um, how frequently 
a physician is able to have a knowledgeable conversation about this may in fact be an indicated drug for your condition, but it's not covered by your insurance or you know, there's a, there is a generic or some other, you know, equivalent that is actually cheaper for you. So whereas you've now been primed to want X, I really think that on economic grounds, you should go to Y. I don't know how frequently physicians are able to do that just because I know, you know, out-of-pocket drug costs vary so enormously to, for each patient depending on their insurance and other situation. Right. And you mentioned earlier, I mean, the, the doctors to patients advertising, the hospitals to patients advertising, I mean, there's a lot of money spent there. I mean, you know, you could be watching TV and you'll see two hospital ads back to back. We have the best machine. We have the best, uh, you know, care. So come to us. And then the next hospital comes in with the ad after that. So, you know, that's also obviously a form of direct to consumer, as you just mentioned. And um, can I just say on that one, the, the thing that really concerns me about that is, uh, there are a couple of things. So when you have hospitals competing, you know, in a given market, there are only so many patients who, you know, have the ability to up and choose hospitals instead of being like, this is my only option due to my insurance or, you know, my logistical or geographic needs or whatever. But of those patients who have the freedom to move from hospital to hospital, that pool of, of mobile patients who are willing to, to go where they think they're going to get the best care. As soon as one hospital in a market starts to advertise, it's almost like an arms race. It's like every other hospital has to advertise or else you're just seeding that patient pool over. So that, that bothers me because I feel like it increases, you know, prices for an entire region. And the other thing that really bothers me, and this is as an ethicist, is the things that are, are frequently um, used in those sort of hospital marketing campaigns are, you know, hope born here or something like that. I mean, what does that even mean? That sounds promising, but I, I don't know what it means. Uh, you know, is it realistic hope? Is it false hope? Like, what do you mean hope is born here? And the one that really, really upsets me is when you see people advertise, uh, not people, companies, hospitals, hospital chains advertising as sort of, you know, a mark of their wonderful ability to take care of patients, the, uh, the number of clinical trials they have, because there seems to be this implicit promise that you are going to get better care because we have clinical trials here. And I'm all for clinical trials. I want everyone to participate in clinical trials. I participate in clinical trials. I just think they're like a really good social good. But when you go into a clinical trial, it is for social good. It is for advancing knowledge of something. It's not necessarily directly correlated to improved patient outcomes. And I feel like that conflation happens in every one of those ads and it makes me want to rip out my hair. I, you know, you, you hit, you struck a, a nerve. I have the same exact reaction. I was, uh, I actually wrote about this a couple of times. You'll be watching TV and you have two literally sequential ads of two hospitals in my local geographic area, both claiming they are number one in the nation. And I'm thinking, okay, if every hospital is number one in the nation, there is, you know, I mean, you're confusing me. And then the other thing you just mentioned is if you're a patient watching this and you are not at these hospitals, you're going to feel, oh my God, am I getting inferior care? I need to be at this number one hospitals and I can't get there. And, and it creates ripple effects on patients. So I'm really happy that you mentioned that. So who, who really in the United States of America is in charge of regulating direct-to-consumer advertising, whether it's drug manufacturers 
or healthcare systems or physicians? Is that the FDA? Is it a different entity that regulates? Well, it's kind of fragmented. So, you know, with regard to what the content of your drug ad is, FDA is involved in that. Like you can't make, you know, false and misleading claims. There has to be, you know, you can't, you can't at the moment and in most states, um, there's an initiative underway in some states, but at the moment in most states, a drug company cannot advertise its drug for any use other than what the FDA approved label says. So, you know, if your antihistamine is commonly used off-label as sort of a, a side treatment for multiple sclerosis, but it was never FDA approved for that purpose, at the moment you cannot advertise, you know, hey, use our antihistamine for, for... So the FDA is involved and it's basically making sure that these are, you know, factual claims, factual statements of risk, and that they concord with the label. But most advertising is, you know, regulated by the Federal Trade Commission. So, you know, I, I, most of this and, and the, you know, this whole shift of can doctors advertise, can drug companies advertise came about as, as a sort of, you know, events at the Federal Trade Commission. So the Federal Trade Commission is really the, uh, the, the gorilla in the room in these conversations. And it's not an entity I know a ton about. But then, you know, the, the FDA is involved when it comes to drug claims. And of course, you know, like the American Medical Association and, and state medical boards and what have you all have a role to play, too, in terms of, you know, are, are you being appropriate in, in your claims? You know, if, if I, oh, you know, I'm in New York City and you, you ride the subway and, and you see these ads for, you know, uh, weight loss techniques or breast augmentation or plastic surgery or dermatology or, you know, uh, dental cosme- cosmetic dentistry or whatever, you know, some of them really cross lines, I would say, both in terms of, you know, what they are offering, you know, like if I increase my breast to a triple D, am I really suddenly going to be, you know, like swimming in money and living in the lap of luxury? So it's stuff like that, that it's not necessarily the FTC or the FDA that's involved, but it's, you know, your your state medical boards that would be involved. And, you know, when it comes to regulation, you just mentioned the importance of kind of be balanced, uh, trying to describe the benefit of something and obviously the shortcomings or the potential harm whether it comes to uh, even physicians advertising, clinical trials, like you mentioned, along with uh, manufacturers uh, advertising. But, but it's, it's so hard to do that in a 30, 40 second ad. I mean, it's just uh, the reality is, you know, it's all about trade-offs. Everything has harms and benefits and it's about trade-offs. But, so are we asking too much in terms of trying to fit everything in within 30 seconds or 45 second ad? Is that one of the things why you think it should be banned completely? Where, where, how do we do that? I mean, you know, I'm an ethicist, so I believe in informed consent. And I think if you're going to use a drug, you need to understand these are, you know, the, the possible benefits that I can expect from getting from this drug. And these are the possible risks that I, you know, can also possibly expect. And here's how in my particular circumstance that sort of risk-benefit calculus, you know, would play out. And you have to have a individualized discussion with a knowledgeable provider to have that that conversation. So I think it's completely impossible to say in a 30-second ad with, you know, microscopic, um, you know, white text scrolling by at the very end 
while the voiceover is saying something completely different and distracting you from what that text says, that you can have anything approximating informed consent. So, I mean, you know, there, there's absolutely no way that you would be able to watch one of these ads and then have a, you know, a, an ethically appropriate uh, experience of going and purchasing a drug directly. But remember, in the United States, we don't have direct purchasing of these drugs. They're through the physician. So it really puts the onus on the physician to say, you know, I now have a patient who's interested in this product, and they've been primed for this product, and I have to go back and do the education. And I may have to be undoing the messages, either conscious or unconscious, that they got from that that drug ad. Or, you know, in some cases, I might actually be echoing the messages like, yes, I really do think this is appropriate for you. But it seems to me if you really honestly were saying, you know, I just want to make patients aware of this option and to get them and to go have a conversation with their doctor, your ads would look very different from what the ads on TV look like right now. I mean, the ads that you look at on TV right now are basically promising you that you're going to have an active sex life and, you know, a great life full of activity and happiness if you take this drug. Uh, and I think if you were just trying to say, hey, you should be aware of overactive bladder and it's something that there are drug treatments out there for and you should go and talk to your doctor, your ad would probably look somewhat different. That's me speculating. Good point. You know, when looking at the amount of money spent on direct-to-consumer advertising for drug ads, it's probably a little bit north on $5 billion, uh, annually, which what, uh, that's what the figure I found I really couldn't find a whole lot about the money spent by healthcare institutions and physicians and so forth on their advertising. I presume you probably, you know, you don't know that figure as well. Uh, I don't know how much of it is really published versus uh, not transparent because you're not really obligated to report essentially as a private health entity, uh, a hospital or or a physician group practice, you're not really obligated to report how much money you're spending on marketing. I mean, nobody's going to regulate that for you versus a public trade company manufacturer, they have to report that. So, so I, I don't know, you'll probably be speculating clearly, but um, I mean, you would think obviously that healthcare systems, hospitals and physicians are spending a lot of money on this as well, right? We don't know the figure, but there's no question they are. Yeah, I mean, I live in Manhattan, and there are certain roads near certain hospitals that when you drive down the road, you see these, you know, enormous multi-story banners advertising, you know, some variant of, I'm trying not to actually, like, say the actual phrases so that I don't get in trouble, but, you know, like, you won't fantastic, get wonderful things happening in this building. Uh, you know, and those, I am quite sure, do not come cheap. You know, I fly all the time, and in-flight magazines have direct-to-consumer advertisements, um, if not for specific hospitals, which I feel like I have seen, certainly for things like stem cell clinics. So, uh, you know, there's definitely money being spent on it. And, of course, that's not even talking about the TV ads, which um, you're able to see me on video right now. Everyone else will just have to hear this audio. But you can see behind me, I have no TV. 
Uh, I, I have an apartment full of books, not TV. And it's always strange for me when I'm in a public setting, you know, like a sports bar or something. I'm like, holy shit, it's another drug ad. We just saw, like, this is nothing but drug ads. What are we actually watching? We're just watching drug ads. So I'm, I'm not inured to them because I'm not around them frequently. But it means when I do see a TV, it's just shocking to me how much of it is straight ads. What's, uh, what's your sense about, you alluded to this a little bit earlier, what's your sense about the ads in the journals, in the medical journals, in the publications that are usually obviously sent to physicians and we all, and not physicians also, we read periodically. What's your sense of that? Uh, obviously, a lot of money are being spent on this. The journals make money because they, have, they make money from the ad purchasing, all that stuff. Um, how, that, how does that differ in your, in your opinion than drug ads on TV? I mean, the only difference that I see is in the education level of the recipient. I mean, if you are doing an, ad, an educational uh, campaign, not an educational campaign, I'm sorry. If you're doing an advertisement geared towards clinicians, you are hopefully getting it into the the eyes and hands and brains of an audience that, you know, can somewhat more appropriately evaluate what is the purpose of this ad? You know, is this just trying to inform me of a new treatment? Is it trying to bias my treatment decisions? As opposed to when you're seeing an ad targeting towards lay people on TV who I don't think necessarily have that sort of training or distance to be able to you know, I, I think everyone in our society understands ads are meant to sell. So I'm not trying to say patients are naive and, and don't understand that they're being sold, but they may not understand, you know, are there other options? Is this clearly the best option? You know, is this an option that is as good as other options, but costs far, far, far more? So, I mean, I, I think the main difference is not necessarily um, there's something different about advertising in the advertisement itself to doctors versus patients. It's, it's in the you know, sort of sophistication of the, the recipient. And I will just say as a side note for any like sort of amateur historian out there, if you can find hard copies of medical journals, which you know, of course now most academic medical libraries have thrown them out and only have you know, online digital archives, but if you can actually get a hold of those old journals, it is defi definitely worthwhile doing so just to get a sort of a sense of how advertising has changed over the years and the sort of uh, gendered and racial normative concepts that are, that are used in those advertisements. Because, you know, historically it was always, you're, you know, you're a very paternal white male smiling down at some woman, you know, being like, you know, calm her nerves, you know, prescribe whatever. Uh, whereas today, you will see a very different style of advertisement. So that's just for your amateur historians out there to go check it out on the weekend because it's pretty fascinating. That's great. So I want to talk now about the ethics of all of this. I mean, you're, you know, I think we, hopefully the listeners have now a little bit of a historical perspective. They have good understanding of the types of direct-to-consumer advertising, physicians, healthcare system, drug manufacturing, all of these things. And but you're an ethicist, so when you well, and and don't forget, don't forget now, health insurances have to advertise too, right? So I mean, right. it's just like layers on top of layers. Anyway, go ahead. Right, and uh, absolutely, and we talked about you know in the subway you see this in 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 magazines everywhere, but from an ethical standpoint, as an ethicist, again, when you look at all of this, 
ma- in a, on a macro level and then on a micro level. How do you approach this to try to address the ethics of this behavior, taking away your personal bias, because you may have your own personal bias, we all do, and that's fine, but now you're trying to be objective and trying to decide, is it ethical for hospitals to advertise to patients? Is it ethical for a drug manufacturer to advertise? Is it ethical for a healthcare system to put something in the subway? I don't have the answer to that, and I'd like you to help us understand the ethics of this behavior. So I want to do three things, and hopefully they won't take too long. Number one is to say this goes back to the question of is medicine or is a visit to a doctor or is medical consultation or is you know, a prescription to a drug, is that somehow different from any other commercial transaction out there? You know, because as you pointed out, we understand that you're going to advertise the Coca-Cola and it may incite consumer demand and they're going to go out and fulfill that consumer demand. And why would we expect anything different about, you know, hey, you can get your health care here, come in and and purchase health care. So the question really, uh, you know, of the ethics of it goes down to a question of do we as a society think that there is something different about healthcare from other consumer goods? Is healthcare just a consumer good or is it something more? And, you know, there there have certainly been uh, long-standing arguments on that point, and I'm not going to be able to resolve them for you right here and right now. But I would just say my gut instinct is that most people seem to think that there is something more than just a commercial transaction there. You know, and, and this gets back to, I mentioned earlier, the, the question of terminology. Like we refer to people as patients. They could also be considered clients. They could be consumers. They could be, you know, uh, purchasers, like what framing, framing device do we use? And for those who use different framing devices, why are they using it? You know, if you if you refer to someone as a patient, you are putting into place this, you know, very long-standing sort of hierarchical notion of a person in need seeking guidance from someone who has, you know, um, abilities and, and training that that patient does not have and is reliant upon someone else to help them with, uh, which is very different from the idea of, you know, um, a, a consumer, you know. So so I, I can't really answer that longstanding debate except for to say, you know, it, it is a, a debate and, and different people use different framing devices because they have different ideas. The other things that I wanted to say about, you know, the ethics of all of this. One is on the individual patient level and one is on the societal level. So with the individual patient level, again, sort of the the hallmark of medical ethics is the idea that you are making an informed decision. You understand what your options are. You know what the likely implications of those options are. You know what, you know, your alternatives are. You know, you have sort of a rational framework to understand, you know, once I make a decision, what the likely consequences are going to be. And I don't believe that our current advertisements, either in the medical journals or targeting lay people, are sufficient to, to meet that informed consent demand. So either we change them and make them you know, much longer, much more complicated, much more nuanced, or we just concede outright that this cannot be you know, an ethically appropriate way to, to convince people to use a product. And instead, we need to, to 
scale them back into just simply, you know, there are drugs for this condition. Go talk to your doctor so y'all can have an informed conversation about which one is best for you, given your particular circumstances. So I think I, I think right now on on the individual patient level with regard to, you know, trying to meet the ethical expectations of how patients should be treated, uh, they're, not, they're not cutting it. And so then you move to the societal level. Societal level, you know, prescribing implications have implications for all of us. So convincing people that they want to use antibiotics uh, when, you know, maybe an antibiotic is not needed in a situation has implications for all of us in terms of antibiotic resistant organisms, uh, convincing people that they want to use a more expensive, you know, neoantigen as opposed to, a, you know, a, a cheaper uh, chemotherapeutic product has implications for all of us, convincing people that they want to go get, you know, stem cell injections into their knees um, that are not actually validated and, and have no, you know, FDA approval. They have implications for all of us because in our current system, there's cost sharing. Um, you know, it's it's only a very small echelon of people who pay 100% out of pocket. And for the rest of us, you know, the costs get uh, divided between all the people in your health plan or all the people receiving charity care from a hospital or what have you. And so there are actual societal implications about driving up demand for certain procedures. And then I guess on that last point, I would just say a lot of time, and, and this is not drugs, but this is, you know, procedures, so like cancer screenings and stuff like that. Frequently, the ads are for things that are not really uh, validated, you know, so go go get this type of uh, screening to see if you have lung cancer or, or go do this or go do that where there's not necessarily evidence behind it. You know, I think that is a, a problem societally, A, because, you know, it, it does drive up the, the consumer demand, which results in, in financial burden on all of us. But B, it just spreads misinformation and, and creates, you know, this sort of misunderstanding of if I want to be proactive and try to preserve my health, what is it I need to do? You don't see very many people, except for perhaps, you know, the random health department saying, if you want to prevent your likelihood of getting cancer, make sure to, to exercise, eat appropriately, and uh, decrease your alcohol consumption. Instead, you see ads saying, you know, you want to decrease your risk of cancer, go make sure you're getting screened. You know, get this uh, full, body, full body imaging to look for tumors. So, I mean, strictly ethically speaking, in, in your opinion, having spent years studying the ethics from a patient perspective, you would say, you, you, if, if you had the power, you would ban all direct-to-consumer advertising in healthcare, or can you see any silver lining where you see there's some areas that patients benefit? Or would you say, no, done, all of it, I would ban it? The only, the only possible silver lining I see for direct-to-consumer advertising is there have been people who have made claims, you know, some patients get their education about everything in life from TV. And they may not have any idea that this symptom that they've been experiencing has medical implications until they see this ad on TV. And that's what prompts them to go and see their doctor. So it gets to people outside of sort of like the routine medical areas and, and brings people in to get potentially life-altering care. And I can I can buy that. Like I mean, I'm not sure. Like stroke symptoms, chest pain, stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. 
But I think if that's going to be the leg on which this whole enterprise stands, then the ads need to look very different. I mean, I don't understand why it would need to be promoting a specific drug, and I don't understand why it would need to be promoting a specific drug company. If you're going to do just a general awareness campaign of, you know, wow, you have to get up five times during the night to go to the bathroom, you should go get that checked out by a doctor. I don't understand why, you know, you can't have five different drug companies who all have treatments that may be relevant to that condition band together and have it be, you know, almost more like a public service announcement than an ad for a particular drug. I think if you're... It's actually intriguing. So like almost a multi-sponsored ad type of thing. Yeah. I mean, I I think if if what you're claiming is we have to do this advertisement because it gets patients who otherwise wouldn't seek care into seek care, fine. Turn it into a PSA. Reach out to those people and as a public service, get them in to seek the care. And I don't understand why that couldn't be something that companies do collaboratively. Well, because of the inherent competition, I presume, obviously, between companies where they do, I mean, I think they, they want to advertise for their own drug. Well, but you know what? I, I'm going to be uncharacteristically optimistic here. I think you know me well enough to know I'm not generally like a, an optimist. But um, I see more multi-pharmaceutical endeavors every year. I mean, particularly with things like trying to promote clinical trials or whatnot. They just see that there's a... Uh, you know, gain in banding together. I, I wouldn't be surprised if there was pressure to get away from this sort of hard sell of a particular drug that you could get companies to move this way. I'm going to be I'm going to be uncharacteristically optimistic, but you know, it may take another 50 years. So, but but uh, but who would drive that, Allison? Would that be people like you who are you know again patient advocates, ethicists, and so forth? Would that be agencies, FDA? Would that be physicians who are seeing patients? Would that be patients who would be driving that transformational change? So it happens less than fifty years from now. Well, no one listens to ethicists, so it's not going to be me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think I think that either you would have change come from industry which means industry has been responsible for other changes. So that's not 100% inconceivable. Um, you know, have, you have one or two um, players who decide to take a sort of transformational stance and try to convince others to join with them and, you know, do a pilot project or two and see how it's received. I could see that happening. I think the more likely route is legislative Capitol Hill saying, you know, look, uh, we in New Zealand and possibly Australia are the only people in the world who do this. We also have astronomical expenses spent on prescription drugs as compared to the rest of the world. Um, and, you know, there are random people like Alison Bateman House who think this is, this is a bad idea. And so based on those various and sundry reasons, we're going to clamp down on what companies are allowed to do with regard to promoting their own drugs. I think that's probably the more likely route. Some people have said that, you know what, instead of companies spending billions of dollars on direct-to-consumer advertising, uh, maybe they could, you know, establish a patient fund and, and give some of the drugs at cheaper price or even for free and so forth. Is that really fair criticism in a capitalistic society? Is that really fair to expect? It's not a, it's not a fair criticism, and I'll tell you why. It has nothing to do with the fact we're in a capitalistic society. It's not a fair criticism because right now many pharmaceutical companies have these sort of patient assistance funds. And they frequently get slammed for them in the press. I don't know how many times you've seen, I'm sure you've seen, um, you know, 
patient charity taking money from Janssen or Pharma, uh, Pfizer or Novartis or some drug company X, I, I don't have any particular idea in mind, but, you know, patient charity takes money from company uh, to, to give to patients who end up buying that company's product, right? And it's billed as this sort of like kickback bad thing. Um, I mean, I suppose you could have some kickback scheme where physicians deliberately prescribe this drug because they're getting paid for it. But, but generally what these stories are about are about these patient assistance funds that are set up to make the drug available free or cheap for patients who can't afford them. And there's no sort of differentiation about that in the press. It's just, hey, patient charity has this, you know, sweetheart deal with a company. It's like, well, of course it has a sweetheart deal with the company. It's part of the company. It is an arm of the company set up specifically to allow patients access to drugs that they wouldn't be able to afford otherwise. But they tend to get slammed, and I actually wonder how much longer companies are going to be willing to do that simply because there doesn't seem to be an understanding of what it is they're trying to do there. You think they're misunderstood in that? You feel there's that, that particular part is an unfair criticism? I do feel that's an unfair criticism. I mean, I, I probably every six months, someone sends me a, a news article along these lines of, you know, hey, look at this. Isn't this unethical? And I'm like, no. I mean, this is specifically what it was set, set, set up to do. It's just it's being sort of misframed in the reporting. So, yeah. So, uh, now, you know, I, I do agree with you that in a capitalistic society, it's unrealistic to think that for-profit entities are going to, you know, provide free health care for everyone and that there's the solution to our problems. I, companies are never going to be the solution to all of our health care problems. But in their limited way, I think that they are trying to, to provide access to some limited number of patients, and frequently that's being misconstrued. Now, you know, obviously, when when an election year, and I, don't worry, I won't be talking much politics, but uh, I think the, the direct-to-consumer advertising have occurred uh, regardless of the type of administration or regardless of right. which party has been in the White House. Based on what you have seen so far uh, over this past year with elections and so forth, do you see any political influence into uh, that particular type of behavior and so forth? Or do you see the politicians or the administration is, you know, hands off of that? Uh, the legislators and the FDA and so forth sometimes follow whoever is in office. So I feel they're intermingled, but I also have not seen any changes regardless of who's been in office. Well, I mean... I'm not a political analyst, but just keep in mind that the pharmaceutical industry is one of the largest lobbying bodies in the United States, and it lobbies uh, on both sides of the aisle. So, I mean, you're absolutely right that you see direct-to-consumer advertising in both Republican and Democratic-led administrations, and I really don't see that changing unless there is a push from somewhere to, you know, actually address this as an issue. I don't, I don't see it coming up just naturally on its own. And if it does come up in any sort of uncoordinated small way, I think it's going to be killed pretty quickly by lobbyists. You know, Elizabeth Warren is the one who I would have anticipated to actually do something about this just because she has a very pro-consumer um, protection bent. And I think that there are consumer protection arguments to be made about, against direct-to-consumer advertising. 
So what else about direct-to-consumer advertising that you and I should talk about or, or I may have forgotten to ask you that you think is really critical for listeners, for patients, for families, anybody who's listening to this show to be aware of? I may have missed things that you, think, you, feel, you feel is are critical. Anything that you believe we should talk about that I may have forgotten to cover in an important topic such as this? Well, I guess I'll say two things very briefly. One is, you know, I'm an ethicist at an academic medical center, but I'm not a clinician. So I would be interested to know, and I don't know if anyone's ever done like empirical work on this, how aware clinicians are of what sort of advertising their employer is engaged in. They probably are, but they can't critique that because they get the paycheck from the employer. Allison. But I, I, I'm just wondering if they're actually aware of it. I mean, like the multi-story banner that you have to walk past to go into the hospital is pretty obvious. But, you know, are you aware that your ad is placing ads in, you know, Delta in-flight magazine? Are you, you know, you know I'm just, I'm curious to right. what extent clinicians are aware of what's happening out there. That, that's just, you know, a, an, an interest on my part. The, um, the other thing that, you know, on an ethical ground really upsets me, and this, this gets back to the, the sort of hospital advertising thing, is I have seen an increasing trend over the, the last multiple years of hospitals, you know, our sort of gold standard allopathic hospitals taking on sort of fringe treatments because there's a consumer market out there for them. And if it's things like, you know, massage therapy or acupuncture or whatnot, I have zero problem with sort of adding on wrap-on, wrap-around services that patients might like, you know, that they're going to seek out anyway. But I have certainly seen things that have crossed the lines in terms of hospitals, you know, selling sort of proprietary drug Cock, uh, not drug cocktails, sorry, like vitamin cocktails, you know, that, that make claims that have not been FDA supported. Um, you know, I have seen hospitals advertising, you know, the services of these, you know, sort of additional sorts of alternative practitioners. Well, I mean, they're not board certified. They're, they're not necessarily accredited. They're not people we would normally expect to see working in a hospital. And are we giving them the sort of uh, cloak of authority and credentialing by bringing them into the hospital setting. So I, I think that there's a lots of patient demand for things out there that hospitals should not necessarily be trafficking in. And I'm I'm worried that the the drive towards capitalizing upon consumer demand is is erasing those lines. Yeah, I mean I'll tell you one of my pet peeves, and I've been vocal about this, is that if you're out there, if you are an academician out there or a physician or whoever you are and you are criticizing direct-to-consumer advertising by drug manufacturers, you need to have the ability or the willingness to criticize direct-to-consumer advertising by healthcare systems and hospitals and healthcare entities and insurers. You can't pick and choose which part of the direct-to-consumer advertising you don't like. And that's been one of my pet peeves, honestly. I, I see a lot of people who are not happy with the direct-to-consumer advertising, but they only target one sector of that uh, versus saying, I don't like the behavior in totality. It might not help patients, and I think it should all be abandoned. Uh, I don't know if I'm being extreme in this, but I kind of feel it's unfair to say I only don't like direct-to-consumer advertising done by this entity, but I'm okay if all of other entities do that. 
and this is not exactly the same thing, but just sort of, um, you know, freestyling off of that, it, it reminds me that one of the most frequent questions I've gotten over the last year is about uh, practitioners, you know, individual doctors or even nurses using their Twitter or Instagram feeds to promote specific products and, you know, what sort of issues come up there um, when you have someone who is using their credentials or the fact that they're employed at XY institution to allow them to, uh, you know, be an influencer with regard to a commercial product that they're getting, you know, paid to, to promote. And I suppose that's a whole nother segment for us to talk about some other day, but, but I have really serious concerns about that. Absolutely. Well, you've been wonderful taking time of your busy schedule with us. Any last thoughts before I let you go back to your uh, normal day? Well, I guess I should divulge that my institution is very heavily involved in uh, promoting itself as a hospital. So I, I should say, you know, uh, start at home and, and, and try to change the world from um, your own backyard. So, so I, I'm fully aware that there's work to be done in, in my own uh, backyard. So. Well, Asin, thank you so much. This has been really wonderful, very informative. I know it's a tough topic to um, to tackle, but uh, hopefully, we tackled it in a, in a, in a I would say in a balanced way that listeners uh, enjoyed the conversation. Thank you so much. Well, hey, if you have any listeners from Australia, maybe they can send in a comment and tell us whether that law passed or not, because I'm curious to know whether um, you know we'll have another pariah state on this issue or not. Yes, all you Australians, direct message me and Allison. <laughs> All right. Thank you, as always. All right, folks. Thank you so much for listening and taking time of your busy schedule to join me on the Healthcare Unfiltered podcast. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. I hope you benefited from the dialogue that we actually had about the direct-to-consumer advertising. Again, it is not an easy topic, but it is an important topic. I want to know from you how well we're doing and where we can improve on things, so how bad we're doing. You can direct message me on Twitter at Shadi Nabhan, that's at C-H-A-D-I-N-A-B-H-A-N, or you can send me an email to shadinabhan oo at outlook.com. You can also visit my website at www.shadinabhan.com. You can send me messages there. Also, you can check some of the articles and some of the interviews that I have given in healthcare. I appreciate your loyalty since we launched the Outspoken Oncology, and I would love to earn your trust and continued loyalty with the healthcare unfiltered. I would like to leave you with a saying from Mark Twain. There are basically two types of people, people who accomplish things and people who claim to have accomplished things. The first group is less crowded. Thank you and until next week.